The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Well, you know, it's, um, it's always nice to get an invitation to someone's place uh, for a meal, uh, the opportunity to get to know each other better, or maybe if it's a loved one or a friend already, just to deepen those relationships or to have fun for an evening. Those are always awesome things. And in uh, Luke 14, the first 24 verses, what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, we have a dinner party. And uh, it's at the home of a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, who's invited Jesus to come uh, to share a meal with them and uh, to enjoy the evening uh, together. The conversation in Luke 14 uh, covered four topics, all of which, and you know how this goes at a dinner party, you kind of, you're in and out of different things, you talk about this, you talk about something else, you come back to it again, and this dinner party had four main topics that are recorded for us, and all things that Jesus had already taught previously in public settings, and now we're kind of being discussed in this more intimate setting with these religious leaders all around uh, the table. And toward the end of the dinner, Jesus tells a story. I have to believe uh, the, the story is actually so punchy, so stinging to those that were there that I have to believe that this is the way the night ended. It was like, well, Jesus, thank you for that, and uh, thanks for coming tonight, everyone, but, uh, you know, and you start showing them toward the door, uh, because it was a little uh, kind of harsh what he said, and uh, through that parable, that story, Jesus had extended an invitation to his own dinner party, but he kind of made it uh, pretty clear that those who were at that dinner party weren't going to be there. And that was the hard part of it. But Jesus is extending an invitation to this future glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. And in verse 17, through the character in the parable, he says this, come to this party, come for everything is now ready. And sadly, the religious leaders he had eaten with would reject his kind and generous invitation to that party. And the sticking point for them on that evening, which turns out to be the sticking point for us, and so important that when we're approaching the scriptures like that, that we not dismiss anybody that we're reading about saying, well, I I don't identify with that person, or what he's saying to them doesn't apply to me. We should never, ever do that. We should always be looking to the most difficult thing Jesus says and say, does that apply to me? Because the sticking point for these religious leaders in accepting Jesus' invitation is the same one for us. That we just can't get ourselves out of the way. That it's too much about us. And we're going to see that throughout the course of this passage and this message. We can't get ourselves out of the way to put Jesus in the place he needs to be in our lives. In order for us to get to that banquet. If you don't accept that it's not about you, because it's not, if you can't accept that it's not about you and it's entirely about Jesus Christ, then you won't be there at that feast. In front of us this morning, in front of every one of us, is this invitation to come, for everything is now ready, and you will be faced with the decision, and this is, this is the phrasing we're going to use throughout the message, less of me, more of him. Less of me, more of him. So let's pray, and uh, we're going to work through these verses as we go uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, even just saying those words, uh, less of me, that might be the uh, hardest thing uh, that we ever do. To simply get ourselves out of the way. Out of the way of the thing that you want to do in our lives. Because, Father, it's so true that we are hardwired internally to be me first. And God, uh, through your word today, show us how much better it'll be when we put you in first place, when it's less of me and more of you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You agree with that prayer? You ready to go? All right, here we go. Um, This is the pledge that uh, we're going to make. Notice it's in the first person, so I want you to make this uh, personal for you. 
Um, this is the pledge. I'm going to accept Jesus' invitation to make it less of me and more of him. Okay, that's my pledge. I'm going to accept the invitation to make it less of me and more of him. Uh, so uh, let's get started right now. Uh, when that's the case, it will be uh, for you and for me more freedom experienced. More freedom experienced. Let's read some verses in uh, Luke 14, 1 to 6. Uh, one Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, it's, it's pretty obvious by this point in the gospel, we're more than halfway through Luke's gospel. Uh, many of you have done this journey with us, and you, you know what's going on here. You know that Jesus has been hammering away on the Pharisees, on the religious leaders and the religious system that they uh, represented. And it's uh, pretty obvious by this point in our study that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, were all tied up in knots over their religious system, over their rules, and over their rituals. And as the party, Jesus is going to challenge this again, as the party continues, of course, this man comes in who needs healing. Uh, he had, verse 2 says, he had dropsy. I wonder if how many people know what that is. It's not really a term we use today to describe this condition, but it is a common condition called edema. A swelling, the Mayo Clinic says this, swelling caused by excess fluid trapped in your body's tissues, most commonly noticed in the hands, arms, feet, ankles, and legs. I spared you a photograph. You're welcome. Now, in the ancient Near East, this disease was seen as uh, being caused by overconsumption. And therefore, uh, people would see it as a curse on the person, in fact. Oh, you're, you, you overconsumed. You're, you're so greedy. You're so about yourself. You're, you're so um, into excess in your life in terms of eating and indulging and drinking. Therefore, God has cursed you with this disease. They saw it as a curse for excess and for greed. Now, I don't know if immediately you pick up the irony of this, but here's Jesus sitting with these religious leaders who were so much about themselves, were so consumed with their own power, having power, wanting more, being wealthy, having more, controlling the people, having their system, such a me first, uh, 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 totally consumed with what I have. That's what these people were like. And so you see the irony? This man comes in with dropsy associated with overconsumption and selfishness and greed. And it's exactly what was plaguing these religious leaders. They were motivated by self-interest and not the welfare of the people or, or not the highest and good that would belong to God and being faithful to him. In essence, what they had was they had dropsy of the heart or they had spiritual dropsy. Because they were over-consumers. And, and so this, this whole thing is going down, of course, again on the Sabbath. And we can't miss that detail because there had already been multiple healings on the Sabbath that had upset these religious leaders who thought this was against the law or it was against their own law to heal someone on the Sabbath. And so Jesus asks a question. He provokes the issue here in verse 3. Notice the question he asks. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And, and they don't answer him. Verse 4, it says they remained silent. They had already seen him heal multiple times on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is going to do in this moment, because this is the last incident in Luke's gospel of a healing on the Sabbath day, what Jesus is doing right here is he's putting a period, maybe even an exclamation mark, at the end of the sentence to say, you've been intimidating me, you've been challenging me about all of these healings on the Sabbath, and I'm here to tell you I'm going to do it now in your own home. I'm going to heal someone on this day, and I'm going to let you know that what you believe about these things is wrong. So he asked them the question, do you think it's okay or not? They don't, they don't answer him, verse 4. In verse, verse 6, it's even emphatic. They could not reply to these things. They had no answer for him. And their silence, in fact, 
was pretty damning to them. In verse 4, we see that he took the man and healed him and sent him on his way. And in verse 5, we're not going to go into all the details of this because we went into it in some detail in chapter 13. But Jesus irrefutably argues his point so that they had no rational response to him. They were wrong to withhold healing from a child of God on the Sabbath. And they knew it, so they had no answer. So here, here's the point. This is what we're going after with all of this because Jesus is tearing down this religious system and really what he's saying is that their legalism had actually enslaved God's people but he had come so that they could, so that it could be for them more freedom experience, so that it could be for us more freedom before the Lord experience, not tied up in legalistic rules and rituals. Jesus had come, he said himself, in Luke chapter four, verses we've looked at before, uh, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so part of his mandate was to free Israel from the shackles that were holding them captive to man-made rules and religion. It's partially why Jesus came. I know I've said a lot about this already and, and we've kind of circled around this a few times but if you'll indulge me we're going to spend a little bit more time on this in point one. Is that okay that we spend a little bit more time? I, I want to make sure we've got this. Is that okay? Is that okay? You're all still with me. And so we want to apply this really to where we're at and, and the problem that we see in our own culture and in our own time. That's what's going to be most helpful to us. And... Um, what I see today is this, kind of a new kind of religious legalism, if I could put it that way. And, and this is what's happening today. It's a little different than what was happening in the first century and the issues that Jesus is addressing directly with the Pharisees. But we live with a new religious legalism that despises and rejects any formal religious expression. We live in a culture today that's actually, what it's doing is it's jettisoning all a kind of religion, all institutional expressions of faith. All authority is being rejected in favor of more personal faith. So, so what we hear from people is something like this. Tell me if you haven't heard things like this. That um, we like the idea of God. We might even say that we believe God. We're just not into church, or we're not into having a pastor tell us what to do. You heard something similar to that before? Or, or how about something like this? We're spiritual, but not religious. Have you heard that before? Spiritual, but not religious, or not religiously observant. And, and so what they're really rejecting is they're rejecting authority. They don't want anybody telling them what to do, and they're, they're rejecting um, a kind of church. They're rejecting church or structures around any of this. And so we already know that Jesus is addressing what we called last week, I'm going to put this up on the screen, but what we said last week is Jesus is, is, is responding to religion without repentance in his context, religion without repentance, okay, the religious leaders were intent on keep, keeping people tied into a religious system, but the problem was there wasn't any repentance, there wasn't any genuine reconciling with God. But the problem that we're facing today is not religion without repentance, but what we're facing is irreligion without repentance. Irreligion without repentance. And, I, and I'll just say this, it's no better. And it enslaves just as much. Because so many are taking Jesus' teaching beyond what he intends. So what he's seeking to do is tear down all of the false religion, all of the man-made religion, and free people up to actually worship God. But people are taking all of this tearing down of the religion, and they're going too far the other way to eliminate all expressions of authority and institutional faith. They're going too far. They're going all the way to... Now we have an anything goes faith. Now we have a designer faith. Now we have just a personal faith. And so what we hear as people talk to each other and they try to reconcile where people are at and maybe even make up excuses to not have to evangelize someone or bring them into a place where they could understand something about Jesus, we always just say, well, you know, he's, uh, he's got his own faith. He's got his own faith and that's okay. And here's the thing, it's not okay. It's not okay. Okay. 
that someone just has their own faith. And I'm not sure if it could have been any clearer in the past weeks, and, and I know that the scriptures are clear, and I know that sometimes I can not be clear, and that's the a frailty of having a human beings preaching the word of God. I thought I was being clear that we cannot do things our own way. But it seems like we might still be fuzzy on that. That we can't do things our own way. That we can't think up our own faith. That we can't effect our own salvation. That we can't craft God into our own image. All of that from the scripture seems painfully clear. And we need to hear this. Without repentance, without agreeing with God and turning from our way to his way, without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sin, there's no salvation, there's no relationship with God, there's no heaven, there's no banquet at the, at the last day without repentance. You can be religious and you can be irreligious and miss this. I feel like I've said a lot on that point, but I still have a little bit more to go. Is that okay? Before we finish this first point, and, and if you give me a little bit more grace on point one, I promise points two, three, and four will be shorter. To that I will hear a amen, amen, amen. If you were following me on social media this week, uh, you know that this is playing out. This, this irreligious, without repentance, is playing out on the big screen uh, right now. And for the record, I don't expect Hollywood to depict God in a biblically accurate way. And if you do, <laughs> and the pastor remains silent. <laughs> We shouldn't expect Hollywood uh, to do that. When I see a movie, I'm not looking for the movie to form my theology. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so, um, in recent years, in fact, Hollywood has been uh, more than interested in producing movies that have biblical themes to them, going to the Bible to find some of its content. And so, in recent years, we've seen a movie uh, called Noah with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's the man. Okay, I'm just telling you. So I'll go see a Russell Crowe movie just because I, I love his, his acting. Um, but, um, but, but Noah was, was only, only loosely based on the scriptures. Let's just say there were no rock monsters in the Bible. <laughs> and essentially Noah was communicating, this movie, Noah was communicating environmental themes not themes of salvation, not themes of reconciliation uh, with God. And so, um, so I didn't go to see Noah, and I did go and see it, and, and the cinematography was amazing. It was a great, a great romp, but I didn't go to it to try and find out more about the biblical Noah. All right, also, another one that was out was Exodus, Gods and Kings. Also, a, a pretty lavish production, pretty fun to see, but so filled with biblical inaccuracies concerning uh, the people of Israel and the Exodus story and Pharaoh and all of that. Uh, again, not looking for it to be uh, the informer of my uh, theology. I saw both, but I didn't go to them thinking I would see accurate portrayals of the biblical accounts. If you want accuracy to the biblical account... Read the Bible. Uh, don't go to the Cineplex. If you want entertainment, go to Cineplex. Now, all of that to say, uh, with the recent release of The Shack, this brings all of this to light. Because now we have another, quote-unquote, faith-based movie. Now, I, I want to make this super clear on the table right now. I don't care if you go and see the movie. I don't. So I'm not the pastor who's going to stand up and say, oh, it's such an evil movie. It distorts our doctrine, our view of God. It's an aberrant theology. Don't go see that movie. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to tell. Now, here's what I will tell you. Don't go and see that movie without discerning what's true and what's not. Okay, discernment, Christ followers, discernment turned on. And, and really, is it ever turned off? Is there ever a time when we're not exposing ourselves to something where we're not like checking it, fact-checking it against this? And so, um, 
I don't care if you go and see it. Uh, but, I, but I will say this, if, if I was to tell you not to see it, it would be on the basis of this. According to Rotten Tomatoes, it only got 18% on the, on the tomato meter. 1-8%, so it's apparently not a good movie. So I would just say with your, uh, with your uh, limited um, entertainment budget for the month, uh, spend your movie money on something better. Uh, then uh, the shack, uh, Drew Dyke, who writes, uh, he's a Christian writer in the States, he said, he tweeted this, I object to the shack on literary grounds. The book was a schmaltzy mess, and judging from the reviews, so is the movie. And so I don't care if you go and see it, but please go see better movies. And if you do go see it, and if you think that it's depicting the God we worship, you need to know that it doesn't. And while some of you may say, you know what, it's, it's based on a novel, it, it's, it's fiction. It's not a true story, and I get all of that. I've read the book. I've read critiques of the book. I've read what the author has said about the book. But you have to understand that the book is, I'll just put it this way, loosely based on experiences that the author himself had, though the details are not specifically paralleled to things that happened in his life. There were very painful things that happened in his life, and he processes through all of those things through his novel. And so he is trying to reflect the reality in this way of the human condition and how one reconciles uh, to God through all of the mess of our lives. In that sense, it is, in essence, real life. And William Young, Paul Young sometimes, uh, he goes by that, uh, the author of The Shack, is unapologetically communicating his theological perspective through the book, through the movie. And in his recently released book, because the critics have asked him this over the years, it's been 10 years since the book came out, the critics have asked him over and over again, are you reflecting genuine theology? He hasn't always answered that um, in a way that was clear, but now he's published a new book, here's the name of that, Lies We Believe About God. And in that, 28 chapters, he articulates 28 lies that we, as uh, people who hold the Bible as true, lies that we tell ourselves about God. And really in this, he answers all of the questions the critics have had of him over the years. And he makes it clear what is described in the book and what is now depicted in the movie is, are you listening, it is what he believes. It is what he believes. And so let me, of the 28, can I just highlight, because I do want point one to come to an end soon, I'm going to highlight just six of the 28, if that's okay. Six doctrines that William Young believes. First, humanity is not sinful, but more, and this is a quote from him now, more ignorant and stupid, acting out of the pain of our wrongheadedness, hurting ourselves, hurting others, and even all creation, blind, not depraved, is our condition, end quote. You see a problem with that? Uh, because human depravity is a pretty important first step in understanding our need to be saved. Uh, secondly, he believes that God is not sovereign, not in control, but listen now, submits himself, submits himself to our choices. Okay, I'm glad you see that one without any explanation. Number three, he believes that there are no believers or unbelievers. No sheep and goats, as you would read in the scriptures. There are no believers or, or unbelievers. We are all on the same path, though in different locations along the path. So that leads to number four. Everyone has been or will be saved by God. That's universalism. So really no need for evangelism, is there? No need to really preach the gospel since everybody's saved. Which then follows number five. There's no eternal separation from God. There is no hell because you wouldn't need it because no one's going there. See how this works? And then, if there is no hell, and there is no need of salvation, and there is, um, you know, everybody's saved, number six, you would see the cross in a different way, and he sees the cross as being, and this is a phrase that's commonly used by many now, the cross is divine child abuse. It was not God's idea, though he did, and this plays off of number two, he did submit to it, thus, 
a very critical doctrine of the gospel, the substitutionary atonement, believing that Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, put himself in our place. We sang a song lyric to that this morning. He put himself in our place, substituting himself for us. The substitutionary atonement and God's wrath being appeased because he is holy and we are not, is not, Young believes, is not the way salvation comes about. That's, that's the core of the gospel, stripped right out of it. So the bottom line is the shack is teaching irreligion, spirituality, irreligion without repentance because there's no need to repent because you're not really depraved. And that is a me first approach to God that leaves us, this is where we started, leaves us enslaved to our sin and enslaved to man's teaching. Point one is over. Ready for point two? Here we go. More humility embrace. Less of me, more of him, more of Jesus means uh, more humility embrace. Let's read a few more verses, 7 through 11. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus comes to this dinner party, and I don't know what place he had at the dinner party, but the host would have sat him, and then he just watched everyone else come in. And how they were all like trying to get themselves close to the host so they could sit closest to him. And they're jockeying for position. They're trying to show everyone else, look how important I am. I'm sitting right beside the host. I'm two away from the host. You're all the way down there at the end of the table. This is all about currying favor and influence and setting uh, oneself up in the social pecking order. And so Jesus addresses this, but we know already because we've seen this before, Jesus is not concerned about the social protocols of a dinner party. He's not playing the part of Miss Manners here. It's not Jesus' concern, not at all. He's going for transformation of our hearts and what he wants to go after is the pride that exists in us that's, that, that we have inside of ourselves that says, I need to have a more important place than I currently have. I need more people to like me. I want people to esteem me. I want to be inf- affirmed. I want a higher role, a higher position. And he's going after the transformation of our hearts, specifically that you and I would be humble before him. If there is to be any relationship between you and Jesus, then you must humble yourself before him. You must get low. And in fact, if I could refer just one more time to the shack, this is the essential issue with this uh, book and movie. It's about authority. It's about the author exalting his, really his experience and I suppose his knowledge above God's. Because of my experience, this is how I am interpreting God. Now I know him to be this way, so I'm gonna tell everybody that's the way he is. And in order to get to that place of healing in his own life, he would have you disregard God's moral demand on you that you're in a sinner We saw this in the core of what he teaches. You're a sinner in need of repentance, in need of getting low, to confess that you are a sinner, that you are responsible for your own sin, that you yourself have created the gap that exists between you and God, that you have exalted yourself for too many years above God, that you've had him submit to you In fact, what all of this is, is a rejection of his word in favor of your own word. And it is the exact opposite of humility. It is pride, it's self-centeredness. It's saying that everything in the world revolves around me. It's what these Pharisees and lawyers were guilty of. And when you step back and look at what's really happening here, because they should have gotten low before this guest who was at their dinner, They're all in this room with him. 
And what's really happening here, the greatest tragedy of this moment for them in Luke 14 is, is that their pride kept them from seeing what was really happening in the room. Who was really there? David Garland said this, the Lord of the banquet is in their midst. They're so busy jockeying for position at the table that they can't see who's there. The Lord of the banquet is in their midst. They do not recognize him, defer to him, or endorse his divine mission. And by the way, it's a tragedy if you're here today and you don't recognize him and you don't defer to him and you don't give yourself to the divine mission. And it's only pride that would keep you from doing that. Confessing you're a sinner, confessing that you're irreparably separated from God as a result, confessing that you are condemned to die is the humble response. Acknowledging that only the death of Jesus Christ could satisfy God's righteous demand, that is the humble response. Seeing that as a plan that only God could conceive of, only God could sovereignly bring about, that is a humble response. Seeing God completely in control is a humble response response and deviating from any of that is arrogance it's pride it's the exaltation of self and first peter 5 makes it clear god opposes the proud god opposes the proud god opposes those who are not willing to say that they're sinners not willing to get low before him if you're not willing to say that humanity is depraved and separated from god and cursed to die as a result of sin. If you're not willing to say all of that, then what's the point in him dying anyway? Why, why bother with the crucifixion of Christ? It, it doesn't even make sense if there's no need. Why all the theatrics? What's the point? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, notice, at the proper time, he may exalt you. You know when that proper time is? The wedding feast of the Lamb. When he says to you, come, for everything is now ready. We feast together. God does the exalting, the lifting up on the honoring on the last day. And, he, and this is what Jesus said, verse 11. You, you should see this. You can highlight this in your Bibles. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Less of me, more of him. Amen? All right. More freedom experienced, more humility embraced, more compassion exhibited. Verses 12 through 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this is the third kind of conversation topic that Jesus brings up. He challenges their habit of inviting people they like or people who can uh, further their ambitions uh, to dinner. He's not saying don't ever invite those people, but how about you uh, mix it up once in a while? How about you try this out? How about you invite somebody who can't repay you? That might say something about your heart. And his suggestion kind of leaves them speechless because what he says here is so out of the norm, so beyond social conventions. Verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. The Pharisees would have considered these people to be unworthy and unclean. In fact, it's kind of shocking to think about this, but they actually, in the ancient Near East, there were multiple Jewish sects that kind of interpreted this slightly differently. But uh, the fact of the matter was they all had lists of people who were unworthy and unclean. They had lists. 
It excluded people, not only from entrance into the temple, into worship, all of that, but, but into God's kingdom based on categories like this, because of the race you are, because of physical conditions, because of mental incapacity, because of gender, because of poverty, because of social status, because of vocation. And you have to realize that when you start categorizing people in this way and saying that some people are not welcome, beyond not being welcomed in, in the ordinary worship of God's people, what they were saying was, you're not even, I just, sorry, sorry about your condition, sorry about your, your social state, you're not even getting to heaven. You're not only not getting invited to the house of a Pharisee, you're not going to be with Jesus on the last day. That's what they believed. Now, in contrast to that, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about what Jesus is teaching here because the gospel is two things. It is, first of all, personal reconciliation with God. That's the starting point. But then it is also, I move toward others in compassion because Jesus moved towards me in compassion. Amen? The gospel is both of those things. It's not one of those things to the exclusion of the other. And sometimes the church has been so much about the personal reconciliation part that we've forgotten about the compassion toward others. And then some churches have swung it so far the other way. The gospel is all about compassion for others and not emphasizing the personal reconciliation part. The gospel is both. Personal reconciliation to God and moving in compassion toward others as they have moved towards me. And so ministering to the needs of the weak and the marginalized and the vulnerable and the outcast is not, as some would suppose, optional. It isn't, it isn't that, you know, I feel particularly gifted toward working with people on the margins or, or I have a particular gifting that's going to help me with that and so I'm going to do it. But some of us get to stand back and go, well, that's not really my ministry. That's not really my gifting. I don't really have a passion for that. That's not actually an option. For those who are truly in Christ, if you have no compassion, if you're not engaged in helping the least of these, then you're not exhibiting the characteristics of a true follower of Jesus Christ because it must be more compassion exhibited in those who are truly saved. And Jesus is going to ask us about this. The Pharisees missed it. Not only not serving them, but going a step further and condemning them, stripping them of, of hope and stripping them of dignity. For those who do get this, you will not only be proving yourself to be a true child of God, but you're going to receive the rewards that he has for you. And not, not that we need rewards, not that we need to be motivated by that. I mean, we ought to be motivated simply by the fact that Jesus loved us and we ought to love others, amen? I mean, in fact, we want to. We want to. But notice what Jesus says in verse 14, and you will be blessed. If you do this, if you invite others in who are not normally invited, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, it's not that we need extra rewards. And and to something like that, where Jesus promises that there's gonna be this great reward this payback that comes in eternity, I mean, to that all we can say is thank you, Jesus, but I don't think I really deserve that. I mean, I don't need anything more, and I know you would agree with this, I don't need anything more from Jesus than knowing my sins are forgiven and I'm gonna spend eternity in heaven with him. Isn't that enough? More than enough. He forgave my sins. He's preparing a place for me and I get to spend eternity with him. Anything else is bonus. But our God is lavish in his good gifts and his blessings toward us, isn't he? Lavish. That he is a father who desires to give good gifts to his children. What a God we serve, amen? What a God we serve. So much grace poured out in our lives. And so for us, more compassion exhibited. And and then this finally, remember our pledge, I'm going to accept Jesus' invitation to make it less of me and more of him. So it should be more grace evidenced. More grace evidenced. Let's read verses 15 through to 24. 
When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now, let me just pause there for a second. In verses 16 and 17, you see there's kind of like a two-stage invitation going on. There's the initial invitation where the RSVP would send, and the host would be looking for a firm yes or a firm no. And unless somebody was dead, they would show up. And the reason for that, very practically, very practically, it was that food preparation isn't like it is today. So it was much more involved, it took more time, there was no preservation methods, no refrigeration, and you would only want to prepare for that dinner the amount that you needed because you couldn't save anything afterwards. And so when someone gave a yes, you had an obligation in that culture to actually show up and eat the food that had been prepared for you at great cost. You understand? Then the second invitation would go out, okay, you can come now because the food's all ready. So come and enjoy the meal. So two-stage invitation, that's going to uh, play in in just a moment. Jesus says, come for everything is now ready, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first saying to him, I've bought a field, I must go out and see it, please have me excused. Another said, I've bought, a fi- I've bought five yoke of oxen, I go to examine them, please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men, this is where the the dinner party ends, okay? For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And they know, they know who he's talking to. So in multiple places in the Bible, of course, we have this heavenly scene of a lavish banquet that is set before those who have been welcomed into the eternal kingdom. The banquet is a picture of that kingdom. And verses, uh, verse 9 of, uh, of Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And uh, so we have this picture People have it in their mind. This is how the whole thing's gonna wrap up. And, and one of the dinner guests, back to verse 15, when he asks his question or he makes this statement, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he's, he's assuming, wrongly assuming, because verse 24 makes this clear, he's wrongly assuming that he's on the guest list, that he's gonna be there. Because he got the first invitation. But when the second invitation comes, he's not gonna be prepared to go. And so uh, he wrongly assumes that he was on the guest list. And this gave Jesus the end to kind of talk about all of this. And you can see that many then begin to make excuses when uh, the end actually comes. Mistakenly believing, presuming, presuming that they're going to be able to get in on their own terms. And so they start using these excuses. Verse 18, the man says, I bought a field. I want to go out and see it. Another man says, I bought all these oxen, I want to go and see them. And uh, this other guy says, um, I just got married and she won't let me out of the house tonight. Or, or I think I read that right. And what's critical here isn't for us to overanalyze all the excuses to say whether they were legit or not. Because Luke doesn't make that clear and Jesus doesn't make it clear whether or not the excuses are legit. What the excuses really just point to is the self-centeredness of each of their lives. That they were just consumed with themselves and what was going on in their own lines, a field, the oxen, our marriage. I'm just so consumed with this that I don't have time to think about anything else. And so the result of their refusal is that their place is going to be taken with others. That's verse 24. I tell you, none of those men who were initially invited shall taste of my banquet. None of them are going to taste of it. Each of them is pursuing their own gain, what's good for them. They, they all have these, um, if I can go back to the initial picture of the healing, they all have these dropsy-like qualities to their excuses, that they're just self-centered about it. And for each of us, you've either accepted the invitation to be part of that meal, or you haven't. 
He's either first in your life, there's no in between. He's either first in your life or he's nothing. He's, he's at the center of your life or he's entirely absent. He's over all or you're on your own. Jesus himself is the unconventional invitation to that dinner party. The invitation is engraved in his own blood. And the question is, will you, will you heed the invitation? Will you come, as Jesus says, for everything is now ready? He's done everything to, to make that place ready for you. He took on human flesh. He gave his life as a sacrifice, shedding his blood for us. He was raised from the dead. Sin and death have been defeated. The curse has been reversed. That's the preparation for the meal. And the result is that their refusal will mean others are going to take their place. Heaven is going to be populated by what one commentator called, I love this phrase, heaven will be populated by a mob of misfits rather than these influential, powerful leaders, a mob of misfits. That's, that's us. That's, that's me. That's you. And if you're offended by that, if you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm not a misfit, and you've missed the whole point of the passage because the Pharisees didn't think they were misfits. That was the problem. We're a mob of misfits. Verse 21, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. We immediately think about the physical we, we think about these being physical ailments, but Jesus is talking about our spiritual condition. That we came to him, we have to come to him as poor spiritually, as crippled, as blind, not knowing our own way, as lame. We must see ourselves as the mob of misfits. In fact, I'm thinking on the new building, we should just have that on the Harvest Bible Chapel. A mob of misfits. Yeah, all right, Blair likes that. Blair likes that. And as we build our church in that fashion, then Jesus says this next, through the story he says, compel people to come in. He sends his servants out. That's us. He sends them out to tell people, to compel them to come. Not forcing them. Don't think of compelling as, as forcing them. But having received grace, this is us, having received his grace, we now want to be dispensers of his grace to others. Urging, persuading those outside the church, listen now, that the invitation is legit because they had every reason to believe that it wasn't the poor the lame the blind the crippled had been so ostracized in that culture so so pushed to the margins so maligned so stripped of hope that they couldn't possibly believe that they were welcomed by God it's not really any different today. That there are thousands of people in this city, just listen, who think they're unworthy of being in this room this morning. They think their sin is too deep. They think they can't dress well enough. They think they don't know the language. They, don't, they think they just won't feel welcome or comfortable here. And to that, Jesus says, it's our obligation as his servants to go out and compel them, to insist, to persuade them, to tell them there's no more place on the planet that you're welcome. There's no place where you'll find more love. There's no place where you belong more than right here with the people of God. And not only will we welcome you, but God will. They belong at Jesus' banquet table. They're welcome in his home and with his family. 
Well, one thing is certain. Verse 23, God declares it. Jesus declares it. His house will be filled. It's awesome, isn't it? I mean, the house is going to be filled. It's going to be quite the party. And those of us who are the followers of Christ are going to be there. But will you be there? I mean, it's pretty obvious the application of this to those who aren't followers of Christ, who aren't professing to be followers of Christ. I would plead with you. I would, I would compel you to come and receive the invitation that Jesus is offering today to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are professing believers, there's a difficult message to hear that if we're not manifesting the things that Jesus is talking about here, what claim do we have? Maybe we've accepted the first invitation, but we're really using every excuse in the book not to be there on a daily basis. And as such, are we really, are we really his followers? Are we showing evidence of the kingdom being right inside of us? The final word goes to uh, T.W. Manson. He says this, no one can enter the kingdom of God without the invitation of God. And no, one, no man can remain outside of it but by his own deliberate choice. Man cannot save himself, but he can damn himself. So accept Jesus' invitation. What it takes, less of me, more of him. Let's pray. Father, there's uh, so much for us to be uh, grateful for in, in this moment. We're so grateful for your love and compassion toward us, a love that compelled you to send your son to save us. And to a person in this room, if we're being honest, we know the desperate state of our own condition. That's why we came here again today to remind ourselves of who you are, who we are, and to once again accept the invitation to let you know we intend to be there on that day. No excuses. And we want to thank you for the lavishness of your gifts toward us. It, it, it is enough that you forgave our sins and you've promised us heaven. And we don't want to think too much about the other rewards But thank you. So help us, uh, Father, as the followers of Christ, to in every way manifest the evidence of the kingdom of God right inside of us. And make that true of this church as well. Father, we embrace that phrase to be a mob of misfits and to welcome in all other misfits. You're so good to us. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.